Hello and welcome to the first of three podcasts, which explore a range of provocative, innovative, imaginative and rigorous work by students graduating from MA Fashion Curation, Fashion Journalism and Fashion Cultures and Histories at London College of Fashion. My name is Judith Clark. I'm Professor of Fashion and Museology at London College of Fashion. And my name's Amy Delahaye. I'm Professor of Dress History and Curatorship And together, Judith and I are directors of the Research Centre for Fashion Curation. Here we explore the language of change. We're using the term language in its most literal and broadest meanings. In this podcast, we asked three students and asked each of them similar questions about how and why they conceptualised their final projects. Why is it important? Is it motivated by personal or community experience? Why now? What is the urgency? And what challenges did they face? In this podcast, we're joined by three students whose projects foreground change and use various languages and platforms to communicate with diverse users. We will first speak to Kate Asquith, who has recently graduated from MA Fashion Journalism. Her final project comprised an illustrated book called Louder, Using a range of activities and strategies, it's a book for doing, engaging with and exploring your own responses, not just reading. Kate takes us on an experiential journey which foregrounds the vitality and significance of language. She argues for the criticality of language and language as action in building societies and forging positive human relationships. We ask Kate what prompted her project. It was actually a Donald Trump tweet that inspired this project. Um, This was back in May 2020 during the Black Lives Matter riots in America. And he he tweeted about thugs saying that when the looting starts, the shooting starts. I think everyone remembers that tweet because it was pretty controversial at the time. Um, And it was just incredible, but kind of disconcerting how much you can communicate through just 240 characters and he like managed to trivialize George Floyd's murder you know he perpetuated racist rhetoric and he spewed out all these like euphemisms about law and order um but the most concerning thing was how quickly his followers latched on to those implicit ideas and implicit communication and then yeah it just really encapsulated something that is a big problem at the moment with communication and how people consume media and how they produce media. So that's where my projects stem from, this idea that words have a lot of weight and a lot of power in our society, and we are often very neglectful of how we use those words and the effect they have on other people. I think it's wonderful when a project has such an urgency to it, you know, that often, you know, research is associated with with reflection, however uh, political or politicised that that might be. It's about looking at something carefully and, and sort of close reading. But yours, I think, this year had a different kind of urgency and a different kind of immediacy. Um, could you tell us about the sense of urgency uh, within your practice and, and within your thesis? Yeah, definitely. I think, well, this year there's been two major themes if you're talking about urgency, one is Black Lives Matter and one is the coronavirus pandemic. And language has played an important role in both those things. I mean, for the Black Lives Matter protests, 
people have started engaging in conversations about race in ways that they haven't done before. And in particular, people are becoming more sensitive to the language they use, which has um, undertones or maybe a history or a bias within it that, you know, the English language is built upon and has for, for centuries has been um, shaped by society and that society has not always been the most politically correct or the most kind or generous. So that's one area of urgency. And then the other is the coronavirus pandemic and the fake news, misinformation, disinformation. Um, I mean, 56% of children worry that they can't tell fake news from real. So it's a real problem. And 31% of them had shared news online, which they later found out to be fake. So people are very aware that fake news is a thing. I mean, it's very easy just to be like, ah, fake news, fake news, fake news. But to actually identify it when you're not expecting it, that takes a certain skill set that people aren't trained in. Absolutely. Um, could you please tell us about how you communicated your project? I mean, what, what format your final project took? It took the form of an illustrated activism handbook. It's called Louder and it's aimed at older teenagers and young adults. And through kind of interactive challenges, through fun facts and through um through a sense of agency, the readers are given choices. The readers make decisions right from the beginning. They decide what outcome they're going to have. And then the book guides you through those steps. Um, and, and it teaches socialistic awareness. So the impact and the history of the English language, its relationship with society and power, um, its role in the human foundation of, you know, identity. Um, and it also teaches media literacy so the ability to analyse media critically across the political spectrum. And then it also teaches strategies for effective and compelling writing so you can actually implement actionable changes, whether that's petitions, letter writing, or something more creative like novels, poetry, lyrics, um, or things like demonstrations like placards or a form of communication or street art, that kind of thing. So it really it, it asks the readers to engage. What were the challenges that you had along the, the way with this research? It's something we're asking everybody, not, not particularly because of the year that we've had, but just to your particular project. One of the main challenges was about sensitivity. And in particular, there is a chapter on slurs and derogatory language, which is a very important conversation that we need to have. But I needed to work out how to have that conversation without, you know, in unintentionally harming my reader. So, you know, they can't be collateral damage um, when I'm trying to teach a bigger, important um, issue. So for the slurs, I, I did a lot of research. I asked a lot of different people the best way to present them, whether it was better to use euphemisms, um, like, for example, the N-word rather than actually using the word, or if I would censor the word with, with asterisks, or whether I would just print it fully. And um, I eventually decided um, to not print it fully. That wasn't something I was comfortable, comfortable with, with any of the slurs, no matter what they were, whether they affected me personally or whether they didn't. I mean, it's a, it's a very privileged position to decide which slurs someone's going to be exposed to without their consent. So I was very aware of that. Um, and so for the slurs that I think are less likely to be recognised by people as slurs. There's a lot that are just within our language that we don't even notice that fly under the radar. So for those ones, 
I had a policy of asterisking them. So it's not the full word, but people still get a sense of it so they can edit their own language, they can examine their own language use um, and make changes. And then for words that I think people are very familiar with, that are very obviously slurs, um, I went with the euthanism option. So at the top of every page where there was a slur, I put a content warning. So um, hopefully no one's going to become um, triggered or, or upset by any of the language use. And could we also ask, so what are your longer term ambitions? Are you going to continue working with the use of language or do you have other dreams or dream projects or what 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 next i find that language really fascinates me so it's definitely an area i'm going to continue working in um but more widely i think there's just so many things you can do and and i you don't have to be talking about language to be using language to make a change to make a difference so in the future yeah, I think it's just in this day and age, it feels very difficult to ignore the things that are wrong. And so if I went forward with my career or my life without <laughs> without trying to at least make some good happen in the world, then then I think that would be a bit of a, a waste of a life. <laughs> Daphne Toprek studied MA Fashion Curation. On this course, students can choose to submit final projects that combine curatorial practices with a thesis that reflects upon and situates their practices, or an extended written submission. Daphne chose the latter to develop a cautionary critique in which she drew parallels between the collapse of the Hollywood film studio system and looking at how this might inform the potential future of blockbuster fashion exhibitions. Daphne told us about the evolution of her idea and how she developed it. I wrote a 17,000 word theoretical essay about um, fashion curation and um, paralleling the field to um, old Hollywood, the studio system, and its collapse. And I tried to accomplish a sort of experimental interdisciplinary approach um, with a very hypothetical idea that maybe the fashion curation future might be heading to a similar um, fate as the um, the old Hollywood studio system went through, which was a collapse in the early 1960s. And so it is posing questions about um, how fashion curation can improve itself, um, what might go wrong, um, what if we don't do anything and um, what might go right if we change several things. Why did you choose your subject? Um, out of, I think, out of a frustration with um, the status quo and what I've been seeing in, in terms of fashion exhibitions and exhibitions in general, really. Um, and that's something that I tend to always do with everything I, I write. I write from a, a point of frustration, generally, because that motivates me to write I can't I can't really write about things that I am um, excited about or that I think are lovely because I think there's there's no not much interesting questions to ask about things that you're already like and you're already okay with and there's not much to resolve and I, I wanted a an experimental and challenging topic that sort of frustrated me and that had a lot of things that had to be resolved. Would you like to say a little bit more about what frustrates you? Um, 
the, in fashion curation, what frustrates me is that I am seeing a lot of the same things. I am seeing a lot of very expensive designer clothing in very similar contexts and specifically in the Blockbuster exhibition, um, there is actually not much difference in format and in presentation. Um, the differences that are there are aesthetic differences, but there is very rarely a difference in narrative um, with these these major exhibitions. And um, this... this um podcast is really about about activism and about the desire for change there's a kind of urgency that underlines a lot of the projects I think um, this year and rightly so um, what is the sort of urgency for you why why now so to speak I think the urgency is that there is not yet an urgency I in my thesis I very much write about the the possibility of a future collapse of, of the field. And I think when you're already sort of close to that collapse, there's not much you can do anymore to change it. It's just coming to you. However, we're currently, with fashion curation, we're currently at a beautiful point where we're actually at the peak of its popularity. And now is the moment to ask these questions. Because if you want to change things, you need to do them when there's actually an audience to change these things. And um, I think now is the time that you can experiment with things and people are open to it. But if people are already bored with what they're seeing, they're no longer going to be open to your experimentation either because they're just bored with the, the actual discipline. I think it's really interesting because most people kind of, you know, feel there's an urgency for change when once something collapses, you know, that, that there's a kind of, you know, rhythm um, of kind of boom and bust, if you like. And so it's very interesting that you've picked this up at the moment of boom, you know, with a kind of, a, a kind of premonition. Um, but, but I just wonder whether you could, you could talk about that and, and how that helped you structure, you know, your, your research and your, your project. Uh, and tell us about your your case study because obviously you mapped it onto another discipline in order to to um, to kind of track it. Could you tell us about that research? Yeah, I I um I paralleled it to the Hollywood studio system, which is old Hollywood. Um, the studio system doesn't exist anymore. It collapsed in around nineteen sixty three, the early sixties. And the Hollywood studio system is a great example of a of actually very similar sort of corporate structure to institutional museums and creative output. Um, and they didn't change. They kept producing the exact same thing for years and years on end. And 1984, or 1984, 1948 was the most popular um, or most visited year in cinema history. And... Um, yeah, they were like, okay, we're doing it well and we're just going to keep doing what we're doing because we have a formula and we're going to keep going with this formula because it, we can cash in on it. And this was not the directors, this was the, the studio bosses and they saw money in that particular formula and they kept doing it, they kept doing it. Audiences got bored and in the late 50s, early 60s, together with the, the teenage boom, um, the system collapsed 
and um, no one wanted to go to the cinema anymore. They weren't cashing in on these formulas because people were bored. And this is this is also where the birth of independent cinema is um, is placed because um, independent makers were actually making all these new things, and people were mesmerized by all these like psychedelic new movies from France and and Europe. Um, and all of a sudden, Europe overtook Hollywood, and Hollywood took about. 20 years to even slightly recoup from that collapse because they didn't do anything. They didn't change, they didn't innovate, they kept with the status quo, it was the same old, same old people deciding over everything and with an emphasis on old people. They weren't letting in young voices and I think that is incredibly important if you want to keep with the times. Um, you chose to do a 17,000 word thesis. Um, and so would you say that you communicate um, or your chosen vehicle for communication is words? And so with regards to the fashion exhibitions, would you see your future or maybe as a person who critiques or as a person who gets involved in the discipline and makes those changes? Oh, I am most definitely one of those um, noobs that is just a critic. Absolutely. hundred percent. I love writing. I love criticizing. Um, I think there is a lot of people who have a lot more practical talent than I do. I'm very good at spotting problems and then I leave them to other people. Um, and I think that that's the whole gist of my thesis. It is that it's a prompt, a hypothetical, sort of philosophical question where the question is actually more important than the answer. The answer is not to me. I am the philosopher here um, philosophizing about, about the future of fashion curation and... I am not going to be the person who's going to answer these questions, but someone had to ask these questions in the first place. And I think that's where I see my position as the person who poses the questions and who lets people think. And then I move on to another question. Moving from mass media and its consumption, we also spoke of interventions and change derived from personal experience. We spoke to Lynn Sheikh Musa. She was born and grew up in Lebanon and recalls the absence of information about matters that related to her teenage self. She set out to create a platform to address this and has created a website for young women, including her own younger sister, that provides information on fashion, lifestyle, culture and health. We asked Lynn to explain the context for her project. Uh, so my project is basically a website and zine for teenagers between the age of 12 and 18 in Lebanon. And it is the first product of its kind in the country because prior to, prior to this website, we never really had a teen magazine that we could go to for advice or just for entertainment purposes. I remember growing up, I always really had to rely on Western media products like Teen Vogue or Seventeen magazine. And I remember that when I was reading them, some of this, a bit of the content shocked me because it wasn't very relatable, it wasn't very applicable to my background or my environment. And growing up, I didn't feel like I could talk about these things yet with a parent or with a teacher. The environments weren't very welcoming. There was kind of a taboo shrouded around certain subjects like dating or puberty. And I felt growing up that this was a lack and I learned about some things quite late in my life. And when I was conceptualizing this project, I felt like this is something that is really needed at the moment, especially considering that I have a younger sister 
who was just now turned 17. And growing up, she had me to refer to, but as I was growing up, I didn't really have that. So I felt maybe this would be beneficial for other people. Will you tell us a bit about the subject of your proposal and then tell us how you engaged with it? So my website and Zine handles a variety of topics, uh, mainly under the themes of fashion, lifestyle, culture and health. Uh, there are no boundaries or barriers as to what the topics can be. We've discussed a variety of things. Uh, we've discussed divorce. We've discussed local bookshops coming up. We've discussed up-and-coming models, up-and-coming makeup artists. Uh, we've done a little bit of cultural pieces and human interest pieces where we looked at individuals who are currently right now fighting the changing and political and economic circumstances in Lebanon to lead their businesses or to lead new initiatives. Um, throughout the research, I first started off by interviewing a few people from my sister's school. And as I was speaking to them, I realized that just like me, they didn't really have a go-to platform and, and they weren't really aware of what the local cultural scene has to offer them or of any local musicians or any local designers. Um, and they expressed interest in wanting to know more about these topics. So I felt like if I could give them a platform that they could go to, then maybe that would help bridge the gap. So, so Lynn, what do you feel is the urgency of your project? There's a kind of urgency to, to how, you, um, how you describe it. You're filling a necessary gap um, and it's in keeping with, with fast, fast change um and cult cultural assumptions and assumptions around teenagers um could you tell us a little bit about the the kind of activism embedded in your project you know that it's about about something that has that that kind of desire for change um so as i've said previously there are no boundaries to the topics that we discuss on the website and growing up, there was taboo shrouded around some subjects that I couldn't, I didn't feel really safe talking about. And I feel like this has kind of gone on considering the political, religious and economic context that we live under. But I feel like in starting conversations on these topics and putting out content that is quote unquote daring or uh, shocking in a way, I'm able then to put out a message that it is okay and safe to talk about these topics, despite how we are made to feel in our given communities and environments. So through that, I feel like it is, I'm enacting an activism and enacting change because I'm choosing to ignore the taboo, choosing to set it aside, despite, despite the context through which it's set in and openly discussing these topics. And is it written by women for young women? Um, I do have a few pieces written by men, but they are not pieces about women. So I, I make sure that the pieces concerning women are always written by women. Other pieces can be written by men, about men. Um, but the main pieces that directly have to do with sexual health or that have to do with divorce or that have to do with dating or growing up as a woman or sexuality, they've all been written by women. And my audience, it, my audience isn't really just girls, but 
I feel like the nature of the topic still, and because of the patriarchy and toxic masculinity in this social context, then a few boys might feel hesitant to read this content or to talk about these topics yet or engage with it. But I hope that later on, if I do get the funding and I'm able to launch the project, I will be able to engage this type of audience in workshops that kind of raise awareness and that kind of enlighten them on what it is like to read this, to read the, to read this type of content and engage with it, and to just make them feel like it's okay that they that they read topics related to fashion or culture or lifestyle without feeling that this is necessarily affecting their masculinity. What would your dream scenario be for your project? What's the next step? Well, I would really like to launch it, but I know to do that I need funding of some sort. So ideally, I would be able to apply to a fund and get it within the next few months. Uh, because I feel like after the feedback I've gotten from a few people who have seen the website and who have read the articles, it would be it would be it would feel like a shame to me to just not launch it and keep it as a university project when it could have the potential to be much more than that. And is your ambition? Um, to continue writing for it or to run it, if you see what I mean? Which bit do you now, have you now fallen in love with? Do you feel you're more kind of, that you want to oversee something and commission text and articles or do you have a desire to continue writing and researching for it? Uh, with regards to this project, I feel like I would like to oversee its operations because I worked with quite a few good writers and I loved what they had to offer me and I loved hearing pitches from different people. I did have some difficulties collaborating with external collaborators, but I mean, I, that was expected from the beginning. But I really do feel like right now is a time for new writers to come up, new people to pitch their ideas, and for them to have an outlet where they feel safe enough to do so, considering that we're going through a very difficult time in Lebanon, circumstances are changing constantly, and media platforms are disappearing. New ones come up, but the, the main ones have gone away. So I would rather oversee that and help people out, get their careers started, or even just talk about topics they are passionate about through my website. We now return to Kate for her insights regarding the key role of language within activism and everyday life. I loved it as well, and I loved the rhetoric, you know, that it was a call to arms, and so, and, and using both a new structure in terms of this handbook, but also things like, you know, actions speak louder than words, silence is violence. You know, there are things where we're in a short phrase, incredibly rhetorically powerful, uh, uh, you know, that you could, you could express the, you know, the perils of, of silence. I mean, you're, it is really a call to action, um, so what is your ideal audience or usage? Or um, you say it's for young adults and teenagers and, and young adults. Is it a call to politicise them? What um, would you like it um, distributed in schools? Where do you see it going? So it's not necessarily a, a, course, a call to politicise anyone. I think the, the youth, the youth of today are already very politicised. They're more socially aware than any generation has ever been before. Um, so it really talks to the people who are already engaging with issues such as climate change or racism. I mean, the Greta effect is something that people have really latched onto in recent years. I think one in 10 young people have shared an online petition 
um, just in the past year. So people are ready and willing and enthusiastic to make change, but they don't necessarily have the tools. And that's where the book comes in. So, so it, yeah, the book combines kind of two sides of the same coin, consuming political content and then also um, creating it. What struck me was that, as you say, it's a generation that is incredibly politicised already, but also for another generation that feels equally strongly about so many critical issues that we're engaging with at the moment. I felt that your book really empowered people who felt passionately but had anxieties that they might inadvertently use language that could inadvertently offend. And so I felt it was very empowering that someone who genuinely cares could read your book and in a very straightforward way learn certain ways of communicating um, that are inclusive and supportive. And I thought that was, for, for my generation, is fantastic, as well as the younger generation. Yeah, there are no wrong answers. There's only trying and trying harder. And if you make a mistake, you know, that's fine. We're human. You just move on. And you keep trying. Yeah, and I loved that element of it. And the fact of the inadvertent colonialism, you know, that is that is embedded in our language and things like that, that that, uh, you know, people know at different levels, depending on their age, culture, generation, etc., more or less aware of it. And I think you do that in a straightforward um, and, and, and as Amy says, empowering way rather than damning way, you know, that it's it's an encouraging uh, manifesto. So taking action is like a central theme of my book. And as you mentioned, people say that actions speak louder than words. Um, but I tell my readers that their words are actions, you know, reading and writing and speaking, they're all activities which can and do change the world. Um, and so throughout my book, there are take action prompts which encourage the reader to initiate actionable change. They kind of range from small tangible steps like including your pronouns in your social media bio or in your email signature um, or you know donating secondhand books to literacy charities that kind of thing but then there's also more abstract long-term actions such as uh, examining your own language use for oppressive or limiting language or becoming more critical of the media you consume so training yourself to spot bias so yeah I just want to say for anyone who says that actions speak louder than words speaking out can be the loudest action of all. Thanks to Kate Asquith, Daphne Toprek and Lynn Sheikh Musa for speaking with us today. This episode was produced by Alexandra Shemanska with sound design by Wilf Petherbridge.